and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the divisions in our common life, and what would it take for us to have more empathy and understanding about people who are very different from ourselves. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or profile. This series has ended up being almost all writers because of various scheduling challenges, but they're writing about really different things from a range of different perspectives. And if you scroll back through our episodes, you'll find archbishops, artists, people from all parts of the political compass and a range of spiritual and religious beliefs. I speak to them about their deepest principles. I hear some of the journey that's made them the person they are today. And I reflect with them on how we can be part of the solution, not part of the problem when it comes to our deepening tribalism. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Christy Watson. Christy is an award-winning novelist, memoirist, and a professor of medical and health humanities at UEA, which is quite a title. It sounds like you could fit quite a lot under that. She was a registered paediatric nurse for 20 years, spending most of her career in paediatric intensive care and as a resuscitation officer. We spoke about humour as an antidote to darkness, why nurses' stories are so rarely told, how she found meaning in the practice of care, and why compassion is what we should be judged on. I really hope you enjoy listening. Christy, we are going to jump straight in at the deep end, no chit-chat, to kind of try and creep up on this concept of the sacred. And having had a very small amount of time to ponder and I'll just frame this for new listeners. When I ask guests what is sacred to them, it's really not a, necessarily a religious concept. It's much more the deep values and principles that we try and live by that kind of anchor us. And one way into it sometimes is to think if someone offered you money to give up on this thing, you would maybe be less likely to give it over because that would be somehow offensive is one of the clues. Um, but what bubbles up for you as a possibility? That's a really good way of describing it. And I I suppose I was a bit worried about my answer because um, I felt like maybe I should say something really profound, Um, but I'm going with honest. And the honest answer is that the thing most sacred to me is humour. And um, I think if someone offered me all the money in the world and said, you can never laugh again with your friends, I would say, no, thank you very much. Um, and I suppose I've been thinking a lot about humour and and laughter and joy and all those all those things, particularly at this time in our kind of pandemic world. I'm not going to say post-pandemic world because it, it's not really. Um, but it does feel like we've had such a turbulent time of darkness for the last two years that humour has never felt more important to me, maybe. But I also reflected on my decades working as a hospital nurse and actually on the darkest of days, the thing that often got us through the day was humour. And it wasn't done callously or or, or gratuitously. It was quietly something like between colleagues to be able to face all the horror and trauma that we were also dealing with. So I think humour is just so important and so undervalued. My mum was a nurse two aunties were a nurse and my nanny was a nurse and my undying memory of them 
is that exact black comedy in moments of um, health crisis or even after my nanny died, my my mum and my two aunties just in absolute fits in the funeral home because they were talking about a cardboard coffin and wondering what would happen if it rained. And just the the real defining aspect of that, I think, for people who've been really close to the deepest things of life, the hardest things of life, maybe. Um, I'm really looking forward to coming back to that. But first, I want to wind back. I want to kind of fill in a bit of your story and get a sense of the soil that you grew in, uh, the ideas that shaped you. So I'd love you to tell me a bit about your childhood, particularly any philosophical, political, religious ideas or any other kind of ideas that were formative. But just paint me a picture of little Christy running around with pigtails. What was oh, her I never world like? Um, I, I had a shaved head for much of my childhood, but I, I was definitely not a pigtail girl. <laughs> so I grew up in Stevenage, um, which is a new town just on the outskirts of London. It's only actually about 30 miles away, I think, but it, it's a million miles away from London in many ways. Um, and it was a very working class area we grew up, grew up in. <clears throat> I grew up in a, in a council estate where all the kids played at the front. We used to play Kirby's all day long. And the mums would come out and shout when it was tea time. And, you know, it was kind of idyllic in a way. Um, we didn't have any money, but we it, we had a real community. And there was a very strong uh, sense of love and family and connection and community and all those really good things where I was growing up. And everyone sort of walked to the local school and everyone knew everybody and everyone looked after everyone else's kids. And so I grew up with with mum and dad and brother, and my brother's just a year younger than me. I grew up in a very, very uh, working class, labour, very um, opinionated, political, book-loving world where, you know, I can remember sort of uh, Thatcher years with my granddad kind of throwing ginger beer bottles at the television and lots of swearing and lots of passion and hundreds of cousins and massive family events. Um, so it was never lonely. I was always surrounded by, by lots and lots of other family, friends, kids. In terms of faith, my mum was a kind of occasional churchgoer, believed, believed in God. And my dad was a staunch atheist. So they had rows about about religion quite a lot um but kind of loving rows it was it was a very you know it wasn't uh, black or white or polarized or divided it was just we lived in this sticky gray area in my family where everyone had an opinion that was listened to and valued and so it was quite ripe for ideas and for finding things out yeah yeah and does the shave head <laughs> My my one of my child's classes is dealing with knits at the moment, so that's my immediate association of a shaved head. But was it more of a style choice, a self expression? Yeah, it was a it was a definite style choice. Um, I, I was walking around in DMs and my shaved head, and I was, went through a bros phase as well. I don't know if you remember that; it might be a bit young, but I had bottle Grolsch bottle tops on my on my shoes, and I wore a choker and. I, I, I don't think I can swear on this podcast, but I had a badge that said F off uh, for many of my teenage years. So, I mean, it was quite a look, Elizabeth, I won't lie. Where were words, stories, there were books around, there were ideas. Were you writing at that stage? What was your personal relationship with that? So I grew up in a house full of books. Um, and my mum, my mum now is still an absolutely avid reader, but it was my dad who was a storyteller. So he would 
tell a story a week later, it would be the same story slightly differently told or longer. Um, and, and, you know, for years, for example, I, I thought he knew everything about astronomy and he used to tell me all the stories of the stars and, and the planets. It turned out, I found out after he died that he was just making it all up. <laughs> <laughs> but they were they were beautiful, beautiful stories. Um and so I, I fell in love with with story, I think, more than words or language or meaning. It it, it was storytelling that was all around me everywhere I looked in, in my family. Um and that's the thing I absolutely love the most and still love the most. Yeah. So you had this incredible foundation of stories and books and you're clearly extremely bright, but left school at 16. What led to that? Yeah, it it, it seems like quite a strange decision now. So the school that I was at wasn't particularly academic. Um, I had great friends there, but the, the standard of learning was pretty shoddy actually when I was there. And so I felt like a square peg in a round hole the whole time I was there really. And, and most of my learning was done at home or through books or at the library. So my childhood was very idyllic until I got to about 13, 14. And then I became a wild child with a capital W. I was searching for meaning in absolutely everything. Um, I went through a phase with, with my friends of sort of obviously risk-taking hedonistic behavior, but also exploring every single religion that you could possibly name. One day I would say to my mom, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, or next week I'm, I've decided to be Hindu now. And, and I mean, I would, I would read all, all religious texts and the Celestine prophecy and quote from it. And I had dream catchers in my, in my window and I was burning sage and so my room smelled of vanilla musk and sage for about three years. Body shop vanilla musk and the smell of burning sage. Um, so I was fascinated and my mind was just absolutely alive with ideas. I was so thirsty for knowledge and I wasn't getting it at school. So I left very as soon as I possibly could, basically. And I moved out of home, which again feels astonishing to me as the parent of a 17-year-old. But I left home, left school, and I went to be a volunteer because I was directionless, really. And I worked in a, a centre for people with learning and physical disabilities. And, and that's when I was around nurses for the first time. And, and, I, and I fell in love with, with nursing. Did what you saw there connect with that search for meaning? Yeah, I think because I was so interested in people and so interested in meaning, what it means to be human, why we're here, who we're meant to be. And so I I really was looking for something that would challenge me philosophically, but also um, searching for stories. And, And nursing is full of stories. Nursing and writing are really just stories. And so I found this place, this perfect place where no day was the same, where I was working with people who were teaching me things on a daily basis. And I was puzzling together people's lives in a really interesting way. It's the most um, privileged and fascinating type of people watching, I suppose, to be able to care for somebody and work out what's going on with their whole life which is the act of nursing, I guess. So, yeah, I, I found a place for, for the chaos in my brain. 
Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because you've written these two beautiful books about nursing and in the courage to care about nursing, but also care and social work and adoption and loneliness and, and these structures that we set up. And what I kept writing down in the marginalia was, well, this is philosophy. This is theology because you are telling stories about people's lives, but continually calling people, readers back to these questions that we usually, I think, can only look at out the corner of our eye about death, about what a human being is, about what a good life is, about what do we mean? How do we live? And it really, the, the humor thing is also helpful because that it, it's like sweetens the pill, right? <laughs> of the theology and the philosophy and you, you, you embed it in these beautiful stories. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is how consciously are you doing that? Yeah, I, I sort of fell into writing nonfiction because I'd written two novels at the start of my writing career, which was 13 years ago now, 14 years ago now. And um, I always imagined that I was chasing story and storytelling and language. And so I started out with fiction, which I absolutely loved. But I couldn't quite get to the thing. And I was thinking very deeply about what it means to be human. I suppose that's the thing I'm always trying to get to in all my research, in all my work, in both nursing and, and writing and also, it, you know, the world was seeming to me, at least, to becoming a very dangerous place for so many people. So I, I fell into nonfiction. I started writing about nursing. And I think it, it, it struck a chord with people, partly because it was one of the first kind of big commercial, commercially published nursing books that had been uh, that had been uh, published in the UK at least since Florence Nightingale. So it was a kind of hole in the market. Um, but there was also some real benefit to try and understand why there was that hole in the market. You know, there was a real need for stories about compassion and, and stories about understanding what connects us as human beings and empathy and the quiet power of those things. And, and I think people needed to or perhaps wanted to see themselves reflected um, in, in nonfiction. So there was a real moment in nonfiction where uh, it became really popular to, I suppose, translate real life and real stories and real situations, I guess, so that we can feel less alone in, yeah. in our state of humanness. Yeah. It was really noticeable as someone who comes from a very strong nursing legacy, how little I understood about their world until I read your book and how our kind of cultural imagination of medicine and ill health and life and death is told through the stories of doctors. Almost every medical series or medical book I can think about is, is about doctors. Why, why was there such a hole in the market? Why haven't these stories been told? What's your theory? I think it's gendered and 89% of nurses are women. And, uh, you know, I think there's a huge element of, of, of that going on. But, you know, the fact that as a writer, 
and a nurse. It didn't occur to me for so many years to even write that myself. Um, has had me looking deeply into my own soul and wondering whether I've internalized some sort of misogyny or, you know, what was that about? It didn't occur to me for such a long time. Um, so I think it's about the structures that we live in, the patriarchy, and it's very gendered. But I do think there was a moment as well where our value system in the West, particularly in the West, but it had become about isolationism, individualism, commercialism, about globalization, about the self about the cult of youth, external beauty, and all the wrong things. And so I suppose people were searching for a place to think about the right things, community and kindness and compassion, and what makes us human and what connects us and empathy and treating others like you want to be treated. And, and, and I suppose some people would go to those to those places and through faith. And, and I guess this is a place for secularism so that the values can still be there, but in a kind of, uh, in a different way, in a different way. I mean, I guess I'm saying exactly the same as many Christians say every Sunday, but I'm saying it as a nurse. And I think, I think as a nurse, Nursing is a kind of faith in itself anyway. And for somebody like me who has flirted with faith of every description my entire life, uh, it feels like a really good place because it's a universal language. It's a language with many accents, but it's a universal language. Um, it is one of the oldest professions in the entire world. And it hasn't really changed all that much throughout history. It's always been there. Nurses will always be there. And so for me, it felt like perhaps uh, the act of nursing is a faith in itself. And it's a faith for people that perhaps don't believe in God. It's somewhere that they can believe in this. Almost like the NHS has become a kind of faith in itself, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, so, so that's why I think it, it had a moment. We were, we were desperate. Everyone was desperate. And I think potentially everyone's even more desperate now. But um, that's, that's another story. So you left school and through this volunteering with people with disabilities, found nursing as a source of kind of meaning and stories. And you write so beautifully and so eloquently about the profession. I'd love to hear the journey of you beginning to write and publish novels and then being a writer, becoming your primary identity. I know you, you went back during COVID and, and nursing the night because it's not, it's not that nursing is no longer part of you, but how was that given the, the strength of the way you talk about nursing? What was that like in terms of your identity and I guess emotionally? Yeah, I didn't see it as such a, an obvious split. Uh, so when I wrote my first fiction, Tiny Sunbirds Far Away, it, it wasn't doing very much. It was kind of just sort of dying a death. And then it won the Costa First Novel Award. And suddenly I was in the middle of this sort of media frenzy. And the media frenzy was about the fact that I was a nurse and I was also a writer. And it was almost unfathomable for people to comprehend this fact. And so one of the headlines, for example, was Nurse Hopes to Set Pulses Racing with new novel <laughs> I mean it was really, original really it, just 
<laughs> well, they put time and energy into that. Yeah, nurse pitted against heavyweighter Julian Barnes for big, big literary press. <clears throat> so everyone, everyone seemed quite obsessed with the fact that I was a nurse and it, it just felt so far removed from writing for people in the media. And for me, as I said to you, nursing and stories, they're the same thing. Both things are about trying to get to what it means to be human. And so it wasn't so far removed for me to think of myself as a nurse and a writer in the same way that there are many doctor writers around the world and there always have been. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up doing a master's in creative writing at UEA 14 years ago, uh, which was how I really fell into writing in the first place. I was on maternity leave uh, from pediatric intensive care and my daughter slept all the time. I mean, she was one of those babies that just slept and I mean, my NCT mums were just so jealous. <laughs> I was going to say, I am holding back. I'm, I'm working back. on my soul and not being envious. Or sh- <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I wrote, a, you know, I started writing a novel because I had all this time on my hands and I wasn't used to not being at work in a hospital doing 12 and a half hour shifts. So I was used to being very busy. And then I did an evening course in creative writing, beginner's creative writing. And um, I wrote a short story. They, the tutor of the course said, it's very good. I think you should be doing an MA. And so I sent it, I Googled MA creative writing and UBA came up. Um, had I researched it a bit more, I would never, ever have sent it off because it was notoriously difficult to get into. And I didn't know. So I sent the short story off and I got in and I got scholarship on the basis of the short story, despite having no degree or even an A-level <laughs> to my name. Um, and they very kindly accepted me on, on the course. And that was kind of the life-changing moment, really, because suddenly I was around writers for the first time in my life. And where I grew up, you know, you've got a trade. There were, there were a few nurses, but you've got a trade. And so I, I wasn't really around, although I was around books, I've never been around writers or artists or creatives. So this just felt like my square peg in a round hole was suddenly gone. And I was a square peg with lots of square holes all around me. And it just felt like home. And that short story became the first novel. And so that's how I navigated it. But during that MA year, I still nursed a couple of days a week because financially I had to. And I was traveling backwards and forwards from Norwich to London. And my daughter was two at the time. And I was reading her the reading list while she sat in the bath. I'd sit on the toilet and read her Dostoevsky or whatever. But yeah, so it was a real turning point and it was a real privilege. And, you know, I just feel incredibly lucky that I managed to somehow wangle a place on that course. And I'm now a professor at UEA where I began. So it's all been quite circular and quite beautiful. Yeah. And you, Encourage to Care, you write about this return to nursing during the real peak of COVID. And the team you were on was the, the compassionate care team. And I'd love you to just say a little bit more about that, about both what you learned there in COVID and that broader concept. What do we, what do we mean by compassionate care? What does it require? Yeah, it, it, I only went back for the first peak. So it was a matter of weeks. It was during that very 
very terrifying time at the very beginning when, I mean, frankly, we all, we all thought we might die and too many people did die. And, you know, it was just absolutely petrifying for absolutely everybody around the world. And um, so I found myself the lead nurse for compassionate care at one of the field hospitals, the Nightingale Hospital. And we were told our function at that time was to save as many lives as possible. And we quickly came to realise throughout the whole NHS that people weren't able to save anywhere near as many lives as they wanted to or could with this just horrendous disease, particularly then when we didn't know what we were dealing with, didn't have effective treatments. And so the central aim for me really in that role was compassion. It felt like compassion is how history will judge us and it's how history should judge us. And when I was talking about compassion and, and certainly in that role. So for example, from a practical point of view, our team was the uh, family liaison unit who was speaking to families every single day. It was a bereavement service. Um, it was various, you know, it was end of life care. It was the chaplaincy. And, and we had actually uh, people from, from every faith and, and humanists and, we had such great chaplaincy support for the staff, for the patients, for the families. That was a really pivotal and important part of what we were doing. Um, probably, uh, I think that was one of the most significant things that we could do. I remember one of the, the imam couldn't get there in time, I think, to sit with a patient who was a Muslim patient. And so the rabbi sat with him and FaceTimed the imam and sat and, you know, I, I just think everyone worked so collegiately, regardless of their individual belief system. I think it was a place where the overwhelming belief at that time was in humanity. And so as dark and terrible and awful as, as it was, there was a real sense of this collective us that I hadn't really felt before in hospitals or out. You use the word resilient a lot and grit about nurses in particular. And the book got me thinking about, it's almost too big to put words on, the, the sort of bittersweet vulnerability of being alive, which is obviously a nice contained concept, by which I... I guess I mean the way the pandemic in some ways showed us what nurses already knew, which is that we are not in control and that we're all vulnerable and that we will all require care um, and that our deep bonds of love are what define us really. I, I think a lot about the Lord's Prayer. I pray, um, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, which I could unpack more, but I won't, which is basically the sort of gives me a relatively, it's, it's, I find in my tradition a way, a kind of reasonably robust container that forces me to keep looking suffering and evil in the face within myself, not least, and yet not lose hope. It's not perfect, but it works for me. What, 
as someone who has been really interested in religion and spirituality, what are the ways that you have found? You've written a book that is both extremely painful to read and very hopeful. How do you um, steady yourself, ground yourself? What helps you live in that tension relatively emotionally and spiritually healthily? If in fact you are at times, because when none of us are all of the time. I think that's the answer. I think none of us are. Um, and I think that that's how I navigate it, is to recognise that I'm not okay and nor are you. And, and, and when we can talk and sit in that space, um, it feels like a very honest, sticky margin that we're supposed to be in, which is not all good or all bad. It's not darkness or light. It's the in-between, the in-between spaces. And um, when I think about going back to the word compassion, which comes from the Latin compassiona, to suffer with, um, I think, you know, we have lived through this time where we are all suffering with someone else. And the way to live with that or sit with that is to understand that the word suffer comes from to feel, to feel keenly. And so the avoidance of apathy is central to my life. And I try and feel all the feelings, the bad stuff, the pain, the desperation, and the joy and the hope and the laughter and, and going again back to the, what's sacred to me is if I didn't feel all the feelings, I wouldn't have the humour and I wouldn't be as hopefully as compassionate as I can be. Yeah. The question you seem to be asking to me is why do some of us not have the courage to care? Like what, what is stopping us attending to each other and seeking each other's good what's your what have you learned when I wrote, us? yeah when I wrote the courage to care I actually my publishers were doing sort of PR and blurb and one of the things they suggested was writing a sort of placeholder that said everyone has the courage to care and I said no you can't write that because it's not true Hmm. and everyone has capacity to care is what they then wrote. And I said, no, you can't write that because it's not true. And eventually I suggested we are all deserving of compassion because that's true. I'm a great believer that you are given a hand of cards and your life is very dependent on things that are out of your control, actually, where you're born, who you're born to, your experiences in early life, trauma. Um, and if any one of us had had certain life chances or lack of life chances, then, then any one of us could be in any place, including prison uh, or the care system or, or indeed... Westminster. But I do think that so much is out of control 
but every single human being is deserving of compassion. Yeah. I'd love you to say a bit about what helps us engage across our differences, because I think a lot about tribalism and polarization and I think caring for each other and listening to each other and attending to each other as full human beings is hard enough anyway. And when you throw in whatever is the big debate of the moment, you know, Brexit, vaccines, whatever you like, it just like sets us even further back from our ability to see each other. How how have you navigated that as someone who's actually crossed quite a lot of tribes, a kind of literary tribe and a nursing tribe? Um, and I know also that you're writing a book in the future with your daughter about some of these generational things where we disagree. What, what helps? How do we get out of the hole that we're in? I think the answer is that we're in deep trouble with social media and we need to come off it and stand in front of each other and be in a room together, talk on the phone, write letters and listen, really listen. And that's the only answer. And it sounds really simple, but it is that simple. Um, we need to get off Twitter is the answer. Oh, <laughs> I know. I'm speaking to myself here too. I'm speaking to myself here too. Um, Yeah, I can't see where it ends in terms of algorithms and AI and 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 the idea of of control or the illusion of control that we have when we're thinking about these things. And I I I hope that we will reach a point where we can see that the polarization we suspect is there is not actually there. It's just smoke and mirrors to make us scroll. Mm. And actually, if you, all these things that we're talking about, for example, in the book that I'm writing with my daughter, intergenerational differences and polarization and values and, you know, everything's amplified to such an extreme an unreal extreme on social media and and the moment you have a conversation with somebody in a room in real life those things are not polarizing they're just differences and they're like when I grew up with my family who were arguing about about God and about politics and having heated arguments with so much love and learning from each other and and that's what can happen because we are divided in our opinions and there's such beauty in that that's how we grow as a society is that we are divided in our opinions Mm. and let's talk about that rather than shouting to avoid on social media Mm. I feel like I can guess the answer to this because of what you said but did you ever encounter a situation when you were nursing where those types of differences or disagreements made it difficult to have care or compassion someone came in who thought something very different from you or from a very different tribe have you ever hesitated to care for someone or had to force yourself yeah um 
I mean, that it, it, part of the code of professional conduct in nursing tells you to be non-judgmental at all times. When I was when I was nursing, that was my kind of rule book. And of course, as human beings, you can't always be non-judgmental. I was going to say that sounds <laughs> impossible. <laughs> it was impossible. And so my Achilles heel was always if somebody had hurt a child, particularly, then I found that really difficult. But it's going back to that belief system that enables me to understand that everybody's deserving of compassion and think very deeply and philosophically about the nature of evil and really try and walk in people's shoes, even if those shoes look like the worst shoes in the world that you don't want to walk in. I think it's really important to do that. So I think some tolerance and understanding is the thing that gets you through the day when you're working with somebody you perceive as difficult and they might not be difficult. They might just be having a really horrible day or have received really terrible news. We all, none of us are our best selves every single day. We're just not. And usually there's something going on underneath. Oh, I have so many other threads I want to pull on, um, but I'm going to honour the gift of your time and say, Christy Watson, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thanks so much. It's been a great chat. Oh, I really enjoyed speaking to Christy and reading her work, especially. I did get such a sense of the missing voices of carers of all kinds, actually. Um, Nurses, people who work in care homes, and it's been a funny old few years where we suddenly realised the value of that kind of labour. But there doesn't seem to have been an accompanying um, spike necessarily in individual stories coming through or indeed in pay or social status in any way that seems to last, which makes me question the underlying value system that we're operating on in terms of what a good life is and what we're impressed by. I mean, that reaction is just classic when Christie's first novel came out and you've got nurse pitted against literary heavyweights. And it also made me realise how little I know of my mum's stories and my nanny's stories and my auntie's stories. My mum was a nurse and then a midwife. And I remember being taken to the labour ward when she'd forgotten something or someone dropping off a card and seeing blood everywhere but not really knowing anything else about what she did day to day or what it meant really up until I had my own babies. Christy really clearly sees nursing as a source of meaning as a faith really definitely as a philosophy that you care for people you care for anyone and you pay close attention to them it really comes through in her books this sense of seeing a whole person, caring about what flavour of jelly a child with really significant um, learning disabilities loves, the thing that will make them smile, or knowing enough about someone's care plan to realise that when they freak out, if you turn off the lights, they will calm enough for you to be able to help them in their pain. That attentiveness is a really beautiful and dignified thing. And it's also shot through with this sense of when systems make it difficult for you to deliver the care that you want to. That's not just a professional thing. That's a kind of vocational wound. 
The mix of darkness and light is so evident in Christie and in her writing. I sort of wish I'd had more time to unpack some of that. Such a sense that she communicates how when you walk with people in pain and in sickness and you hold people's hand in the worst parts of their life and you clean up their bodily fluids, it's a deeply spiritual practice and brings you really close to life and to humanity in humans in their least glossy and guarded form, in their most tender and vulnerable and beautiful and ugly moments, I guess. And so hearing the context of Christy as someone who's just been really hungry for meaning and has explored all these religious and spiritual paths made sense of the philosophy under her writing and the kind of depth that her public voice offers. And I am, of course, challenged by her summary of the damage of social media because, obviously, I know this. I've spoken to enough people 100 episodes in and I know enough about the algorithms and the seeming bad faith behind a lot of the strategic and profit-driven decisions on these spaces that have become our public spaces, have become our public squares, have become the scaffolding for our common life. To be nervous of social media and its ability to help us bridge divisions. But I've also made some amazing real-life friends on there who I would never otherwise have met from completely different tribes. I've had really meaningful conversations and I am someone primarily interested in powerful communication and effective communication of our deepest things, of our most precious things. And it's such a great tool when it's working. Ugh, but maybe I should leave. What do you think? Answers on a postcard or in a tweet? <laughs> That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.